0: Revelation chapter 1. You're wondering by my text selection if I'm intending to preach a series on Revelation. The answer is yes. My original thought was to preach through the churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, but I couldn't decide where to begin. It didn't seem right just to start with Ephesus. So I decided to start at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and preach it as if I were preaching through the whole book, and we'll just see how far we go. Maybe we'll have to take a break at the end of chapter 3. Maybe we'll keep moving. I'm really not sure yet, but we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. This is the Word of God, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John, who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that He saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth, shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Call our attention to verses 1-3 through 3 for the text of this evening's sermon. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass, and He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John, who bare record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that He saw blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand beloved congregation in our lord jesus christ the first word of the first verse of this book of Revelation in the Greek is the word apokalypsis, or as it has been transliterated into English, apocalypse. This word, apocalypse, has taken on a specific meaning due to the influence of popular culture. If you ask someone on the street What is the apocalypse? You will likely hear an answer that goes something like this. The apocalypse is when the world is destroyed utterly from some catastrophic final event. The apocalypse is what happens when nuclear warheads are unleashed and the world's cities are annihilated and the rest of the world falls into confusion and war. The apocalypse is when an asteroid collides with the earth And tsunamis wash everything away. The apocalypse is bad. Very bad. To be dreaded. To be feared. To be avoided, if possible. Now it is true that this book, whose first word is apocalypse, does speak of terrible events in the future. And these terrible events are cast in strange and symbolic language which adds an aura of mystery to the whole thing. What are these terrible locusts if you read chapter 9? Terrible locusts with the faces of men who swarm out of this black pit with stings in their tails that they use to hurt the men on the earth. Who is this great harlot if you read chapter 18 who is riding on a beast with blood dripping from her mouth and a name of abomination written on her forehead? The apocalypse, the revelation, foretells the breakdown of the heavens and the earth. It speaks of the plagues of God that will fall on men. In many ways, it is a dreadful book. It's far more dreadful, really, even than popular culture imagines it to be. But the word apocalypse does not merely refer to dreadful events in the future. The word apocalypse means unveiling. It's the kind of unveiling that happens when an artist has been busy at work creating a statue or painting something and all the while that he's been busy at work creating this, this masterpiece, he's kept it veiled from the public. But now the day has come when the work is finished and it's time to unveil and to show the public what he has been doing. And so he pulls back the curtain. That's what the apocalypse refers to an unveiling. A revelation of something has been hidden. The question is, what is being unveiled in this particular apocalypse or this particular revelation? And though the answer involves dreadful future events and plagues and catastrophes and so on, it is by no means resolved by them. A good painting has a background that moves. Not really moves, but there's movement in the background. And all of that movement in the background draws your eye. And it draws your eye specifically to a focal point. And that's the way it is here. There are destructions and calamities. There's all kinds of terrible things that the book of Revelation speaks of. Wars and rumors of wars and so on. But that's all the dark background movement And that dark background movement grabs your eye and draws it irresistibly to the focal point, which is what this apocalypse is all about. It is the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ coming in His glory. And that's what I call our attention to this evening, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. First, we will see to whom this apocalypse or this revelation is given. Secondly, from whom it comes, which is very important because that speaks to its authority and its certainty. And then finally, what verse 3 says, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, first, to whom it is given. Secondly, from whom it comes. Finally, blessed reader. The apocalypse, I said, is an unveiling. And it unveils the coming of Jesus Christ in His glory. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ in His glory is the focal point. But as this apocalypse reveals Jesus Christ coming in His glory, it also reveals many other things along the way. The apocalypse, according to verse 3, is a prophecy. And it is a prophecy that is futuristic in its orientation. It foretells the future. This book, when you read it, takes you all the way to the very end. That's the amazing thing about the Bible. The Bible is a book that begins in the beginning. It begins with God planting this beautiful garden that is called paradise, where the first people lived and had fellowship with God. Then the Bible ends at the ending And it's very similar to the beginning with God creating a new heavens and a new earth, a new paradise where He dwells in fellowship with His people and His tabernacle is with men. The ending is the glorious conclusion of history. And that's what this apocalypse prophesies. So it's not true what they say. The apocalypse is not something to be dreaded. The apocalypse is not something only to be afraid of, at least not by those who are in Jesus Christ. The apocalypse is the culmination and the realization of all of the hopes of the redeemed people of God. The apocalypse is the revelation of a future where every tear will be wiped out of the eyes of God's children. Where there will be no more death. Where the tree of life will be planted again by a river of clear water and the Son of Man Will sit there with his face shining so that there is no light needed from the sun anymore, from the light, for the light from the face of the Son of God fills the whole world. The apocalypse is the revelation of a future day when evil will be banished forever into the darkness and there will only be light. The apocalypse is a definitive statement from God that the future is not darkness, the future is light and joy and peace for the people of God. But it's not only the final ending that this book reveals. It's also, according to verse 1, those things which must shortly come to pass. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now that statement was true already when this book was first written down by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Spirit around the year 95 A.D. This book was given to John and to the church of his day to signify things that must shortly come to pass. And there were recognizable developments in the world and in the church that this apocalypse referred to and that the church of that day would have recognized. There were seven real churches, congregations, in Asia Minor, to which John sent this apocalypse in the form of a letter. Those seven churches were in the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, according to verse 11. There was also a real city in those days that had been built on seven hills or seven mountains And was full of glamour and culture and was like a new Babylon. And if you read on in the book of Revelation, you'll find that there's a city Babylon that's built on the seven mountains. That's described in chapter 18. Well, there was a real city like that that existed. That John may have visited. That others certainly had visited. Paul had been there before. There was in that city a real emperor who styled himself as a god and was worshipped as a god. There was real persecution that was faced by Christians who refused to worship this emperor. The church in John's time may have looked at the city of Rome and the emperor, empire of Rome and the Roman emperor at the heart of it and this cult of worship that surrounded that Roman emperor. And they might have said, those things that must shortly come to pass are referring to these things that are unfolding before our very eyes. This is what the apocalypse predicted. Those things which must shortly come to pass was true of the church in 95 AD and this word spoke to them. But that phrase is still true today. Even though the city of Rome isn't the way it was then, and even though those seven churches that John would have recognized are long vanished into the mists of history, If you carefully study this book, you will discover that there is a cycle that repeats itself. The cycle repeats itself and it repeats itself with ever greater intensity just like a woman who is in labor and she is going through contractions. And as it becomes closer to the time when the child is going to be delivered, those contractions come with greater frequency and greater intensity. And so the same developments are seen again and again and again. The same plagues, the same rise of wickedness, the same apostasy, the same troubles, again and again and again, but more intensely. If John and the church of his day saw the smoke of war rising in the distance and recognized something of the things that the book of Revelation foretold, they could not have imagined the kind of smoke and fire and wars that were coming in the future, the kind of wars that we can read about in our history books. If John and the church of his day saw wicked and proud and decadent the city of Rome and the society that it represented, they could not have imagined the kind of opulence and godlessness that was coming in the world that we see in our day and in our place. If John and the church of his day saw the white horse of the gospel running representing the spread of the truth of Jesus Christ over the world. They could not have imagined just how far and just how wide that white horse of the Gospel would end up going. If it was true in A.D. 95 that these things must shortly come to pass, it's all the more true in A.D. 2024 that these are the things which must shortly come to pass. The labor pangs intensify as the time of birth draws nearer. But that time is always drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. And that tells us what this apocalypse is really all about. The apocalypse unveils many things, but its real purpose is to unveil the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the birth that we're talking about here. Do you ever wonder why history goes the way it does? Do you ever say to yourself, if there's a God in heaven, why does He allow this or that to happen? Why does He allow something like an atomic bomb even to be invented in the first place, much less to be turned into the monstrosity of a weapon that it has become and to be multiplied time and time again so that people live in fear of a nuclear holocaust? Why does He allow that? Why does He allow society to become so patently evil, so patently dark, while the good things always seem to fade away and to fall into chaos and oblivion? Why does God allow His people to suffer as they stand alone for righteousness in a wicked world? Why is it always more chaos? Why is it always more confusion, more evil, more destruction, and not less? The answer is, because this is the way Jesus Christ and the coming of Jesus Christ is unveiled and revealed. Behold, He cometh, and He cometh as the only true and final solution to the plagues and the calamities and the destructions in the earth. And He cometh as the only one who is able finally to wipe the tears out of the eyes of of his people and he cometh as the righteous judge who will vindicate those who trust in him and who will silence once and for all the wicked and he cometh as the only source of true stability and he cometh as the only one who brings a kingdom that rests on true and genuine morality and he cometh as the only one who is able to establish a lasting order he cometh and all of history has been designed by God, both past and future, to unveil Him in His coming. That's what it's all about, beloved. That's how your little life fits into the grand scheme of things. That's what world events are all about. It's all orchestrated by the will of God. And it's not about you In the end, and it's not about me, and it's not about any of us in the end, though we're caught up in it blessedly, wonderfully. We're caught up in it, but it's not about us, it's about Him, it's about Jesus Christ, His unveiling, His apocalypse. Apocalypse, you see, is a word that speaks to more than just the end of time. It's a word that speaks to the meaning of everything. Everything there is. It is the apocalypse. The unveiling. The revelation of Jesus Christ coming, coming, coming in His glory. This apocalypse then was given to Jesus Christ. There's a double meaning in that first phrase of verse 1. The revelation Of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, it is the revelation that has Jesus Christ as its object. That is, it is the revelation wherein Jesus Christ is the one who is being revealed. When this revelation is uncovered before your eyes, it will be Jesus Christ whom you see. All of the chaos and the confusion. All of the plagues and the turmoil. That's all background movement. And it all is intended by God to draw the eye irresistibly to the One who comes in the clouds, whom every eye shall see, according to verse 7. It is the uncovering of Jesus Christ, pulling the veil back to show Him in His glory. On the other hand, it is the revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ because this revelation has been given over to Him. And is under His authority. The first line of verse 1 again tells us this. It says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John." It's His revelation, in other words. His apocalypsis. It's not the revelation that belongs to John who tells us all of these things out of his own clever imagination and, if he were writing in the modern day, holds the copyright over its contents. It's not the revelation of this angel either who appeared unto John and who gave these things to John in a vision. It was given to Jesus Christ. It belongs to To Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ holds the copyright, if we may put it that way. Jesus Christ has the authority over the contents of this book. It's His apocalypse. What that tells us is that Jesus Christ holds the reins, Jesus Christ holds the reins on everything that is going to be disclosed and revealed in this book. First of all, He holds the reign on the book itself as a book. If this book and its contents are disclosed to anyone, Jesus Christ is the one who is responsible for that. Just think about that for a minute, beloved. Very practically, Jesus Christ could have sent this revelation to anyone in all the world. Anyone that He wanted to. There's all kinds of people in the world. There were all kinds of people in the world in John's day as well. Jesus Christ could have sent this apocalypse to any one of them, but he sent it to John, appearing to him on the Lord's day as he sat on the island of Patmos in exile because he was facing tribulation and persecution for his faith. Jesus Christ could have seen fit that this revelation would be hidden at the day and age in which we live. For hundreds of years, the contents of this book were shut up. They were shut up for the simple reason that people couldn't read. Or they couldn't read Latin and Greek, anyways. Or if they could read Latin and Greek, they didn't understand what this book was talking about. Because it's cloaked in mystery. There's symbols here, pictures, ideas that are mysterious. But Jesus Christ has seen fit that you should have this book right before you, and that you should have it in plain English. That's amazing. He's also seen fit that having this book, you're able to read it. And not only able to read it, but to understand what this book is saying. We live in a day and age in which the book of Revelation has been opened up in a way that it wasn't in the past. In church history, this book was largely shrouded in mystery. and People didn't know what it was talking about or they had all kinds of allegorical meanings that really didn't have anything to do with the text. But, Men, gifted men, men of God in the past, have labored on this book. And there are excellent commentaries that make the meaning plain. And we're the beneficiaries of that. Now, why is that the case? Why do we have access to this book in this time in which we live? Well, Jesus Christ is responsible for that, it's His book. It's his revelation and he gives it to whomsoever he will and he's given it to us. It's amazing. But more than the book itself as a book, Jesus Christ holds the reins on the things that are revealed in this book and predicted in this book and foretold in this book. Jesus Christ holds the reins on time and history itself. What does this book foretell? It foretells great events that will shortly come to pass. It foretells the rising of the kingdom of the great beast, spoken of in Revelation 13. It foretells the running of the four horsemen, mentioned in Revelation 6. It foretells the great battle of Armageddon. It foretells the final resurrection of the dead, both the resurrection unto life eternal and the resurrection of those who will ultimately be damned and cast into the lake of fire. It foretells the binding and the loosing of Satan who will come out of the bottomless pit and who will wreak havoc on the earth. And all of these things it foretells are happening around us all of the time and they will happen in the future as those labor contractions, as it were, grow in intensity and frequency. But Jesus Christ holds the reins. No creature can so much as move apart from His will For it is His prerogative to reveal Himself in the way that He wants to at the time that He wants to. God has given this to Him. It's His apocalypse. That's a tremendously comforting thought to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, is it not? This is the same person, remember, who gave His life for you in love for you, shedding His blood so that you might have standing with God, and that you might be declared heirs of life eternal. This is the same person who pours His Spirit out upon you and who gives you a living and a true faith so that you might know Him and live in the confidence that you belong to Him. This is the same person who calls you His servants. So He shows these dreadful things that must shortly come to pass not to frighten us. Not to fill us with all kinds of dread and foreboding. But He reveals these things to us because He cares about us. And He wants us to know what's coming. To prepare us. To make us ready. And not just to prepare us for persecution and for hard times and to live under the, the reign of the Antichrist, as it were, but to prepare us for the greatest moment of our life. For the greatest moment of the history of this age which is when we will look up and we will see the Son of God coming in the clouds, coming as light into the darkness, riding as the King of glory on His white horse in battle array, His eyes of flaming fire, His feet like burnished brass to establish a kingdom that will go on forever and ever and ever. This apocalypse has been given to Him And so He gives it to you who believe in Him so that you will have hope. But if it's been given to Jesus Christ, where does it come from originally? Or who gave it to Him? From whom to Jesus Christ does this apocalypse come? And the answer is, It comes from God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. It's a remarkable statement. And there's a lot bound up in that statement, beloved. But what it tells us is this this is God's apocalypse. This is God's revelation. What God wants to show. What God wants to make known in all of His works, in all of His doings. This is what He's driving at. This is what He's aiming at. This apocalypse. It's an apocalypse, therefore, that has been in the mind of God for a very, very, very long time. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God from long before it was ever actually given to John in a vision on the island of Patmos. This apocalypse has been in God's mind before Jesus walked on the earth and suffered and died on the cross or walked on the sea or healed the blind or was born. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God from before the time when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea like a flock of sheep. Or the Israelites walked through the wilderness eating manna. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God before ever he spoke to Abraham and called him out of the land of Ur to a new land that he would show him. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God from before the time when there were stars in the heavens, from before the time that there were trees growing out of the green earth. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God from before the time that there were people walking in the cool green grass, eating fruit in the Garden of Eden. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God from before the time that there was a world. This apocalypse has been in the mind of God from before the time that there was anything. It has always been in God's mind. This revelation. This is what occupies the immense... An eternal and glorious being of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what has always occupied Him. The apocalypse. The revelation. The unveiling of His Son, Jesus Christ, as He comes. Coming in all of His brilliance and glory. If you want to know, beloved, what the triune God of the Christian faith is all about. If you want to know what God cares about more than anything else. Is captured in that brief statement that begins this last book of the Bible, the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And that's not at all, in the least bit, an exaggeration. You have to look at it that way. You have to look at it that way if you're going to come to grips with the things that this book says. It is a dreadful book in many ways. It's a book that tells of woe. It's a book that speaks of coming destruction. We've seen some of this destruction in the world already. But there's more that's to come. More and worse than anything that has been seen so far. The only way to account for this without becoming a complete cynic or a nihilist is to believe something very, very basic to the Christian faith, which is that the ultimate meaning of things is not to be found in the things themselves. However terrible they might be, but the ultimate meaning of things is to be found in God. And what does God set before us as the main driver of history? As the main event? The answer is Jesus Christ. His Son. Coming. Coming in all His glory, in all His beauty, against this dark backdrop of calamity and destruction. That's the tremendous importance of this book and its message, beloved. This book gives meaning to everything. Why? How? Because it shows us the mind of God and what He's doing in the world and why He's doing it this apocalypse comes from God. From God then. It comes to Jesus Christ. And God has given it to Jesus Christ as a reward for all that Christ has endured and all that Christ has accomplished while on this earth. Beloved, this is what enabled Jesus to despise the shame that He had to experience and to endure the suffering that was His awful cup To drink the cup of wrath. It was for the joy that was set before him, as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 2. This is what was given to him when finally, after all of his sufferings, after rising from the dead, he ascended into heaven and appeared before his Father. This was the prize that he would be given authority by God to open up this apocalypse and to reveal His glorious coming. That's what this book is about. That's, if we make our way through this book, what we're going to be seeing again and again and again. But for now, just note that through Christ, this apocalypse comes to us from God, from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal being. Who created the world. That gives it a weight. That gives it a power and a certainty. These are not things which may or may not come to pass if the right conditions prevail. This is not a future that is subject to chance. That may possibly be thwarted. That may possibly come undone. Maybe the devil will have his way after all. No, this comes from God. The same God who speaks and it is done. Who commands and it stands fast. The God who holds the whole world, not just the globe, but the whole universe in His hands. But with God as the ultimate source, it comes to us then from Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And I think we tend to underestimate how important that is that this revelation, not just this revelation, but all revelation comes to us through Jesus Christ. If God simply were to speak these things to us directly, beloved, we would be undone. For one thing, we wouldn't understand it. If little children are unable to understand the words and the formulas that come out of the mouth, or are written in chalk on a blackboard by a great mathematician in the world, or a great physicist. How can we expect to understand the deep things of God that have been in His mind from before the world was created? It's beyond us. But the problem goes deeper than just understanding. God is holy. He's completely other than us. He dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. Moses scarcely could bear to see God's coattails as they slipped around the corner and out of sight as he was given that opportunity to see the backside of God. For God, simply to open His mouth and speak His mind to us bluntly and directly would undo us. It would destroy us. But in Jesus Christ, we have The eternal God, veiled in our flesh, tabernacling with us. He is a person who dwells in the bosom of the Father and therefore knows His every thought. But He is a person who also has become one of us. A person who can speak to us without undoing us and unraveling us. A person who can make us understand the deep things of God. Who can pull back the veil Of God's glory and of His coming glory, bit by bit, piece by piece, little by little, as we are able to bear it, as we are able to come to grips with it, as the church as a whole passes through time and is able to understand these things. And that's what He does. Beloved, there's so much grace in the way the apocalypse unfolds and is unveiled. If John and the church of his day around 95 AD saw the things that we see and have seen, no doubt it would frighten them. It would terrify them. They wouldn't be able to understand it. The things that to us have become historical facts, like the exploding of atomic weapons, the wars that have been fought. The global nature of the world. If we were able to see today the things that God's people will see at the very end of time, I think that would undo us. And we would become afraid and we wouldn't understand it any more than John could understand our world. But that's why Jesus doesn't treat us that way. He doesn't treat us as if we are little gods, as if we are able to know everything. Even though that's the way that we like to be sometimes, or try to be sometimes. We think we have to know everything. We think we have to know the future. But Jesus doesn't treat us like that. He knows we can't bear that. He treats us as servants, His own servants, bought by Him and purchased by His own blood. Servants who only ever need to know enough, just enough. To face the things that we are given to face in our own time. And then to live in hope. In hope that at the end of it all, He's coming. And He's coming in glory and beauty. It was an overabundance of grace that prompted our Lord to send that angel to John. It was an overabundance of mercy that prompted the Lord to send and to signify This apocalypse in language that we can understand, though it's difficult language, though it's language that has required the church to study it diligently for many, many years. It was grace that prompted the Lord to give that to us, that He might show unto His servants, to you and to me, the things that must shortly come to pass. Beloved, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that joy beyond all words? This is the apocalypse. It's not merely portents of dreadful future events, but it is the love of Jesus Christ for his servants, his little servants, his little children who live in a big, dark, and scary world. And he tells them, Take heart. Take heart, my love. I love you. I'm coming for you. I won't let you down. Blessed therefore is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy of this book. That statement in verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, is alluding to something that would have felt pretty familiar because it would have looked pretty similar to what we're doing right now. He that readeth. It's not just the man who reads quietly to himself in his living room with his lamp on and his reading glasses on his face. No, it's talking about the pastor or the public reader who reads these words out in the public worship service. The apocalypse will be written down by John and it will be enclosed in a letter and that letter will be sent to those seven churches Real congregations of real believers who lived in these real cities, Ephesus and Pergamos and Thyatira and so on. And then the pastor of those churches, or as he's called later in chapter 1, the angel, the messenger of those churches will take those words that were written down from the pen of John and will read them publicly. And blessed is he that readeth And it's not going to stop at those seven churches of Asia Minor. But this letter will go around and it will pass through the ages until it has come to us and is read in our ears. And blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And that's you, the people sitting in the pew. That's you children who may live long enough to see some frightening things unfolding in the course of your life. Predicted here in the book of Revelation. That's you Christian men who tremble a bit at the thought of having to lead your home, your wife, your children through dark times, perilous times. That's you old saints. You old saints who can hardly believe how much the world has changed since you were young. And you wonder, how much more is it going to change? What kind of world are my children and grandchildren going to have to live in? Blessed are you. Blessed are you, children, young people, fathers, mothers, Christians, young and old. Blessed are you who hear The words of this prophecy. It could be another way, you know. It could be that you never know about any of this. It could be that these words remain hidden and obscure in a language that you can't understand. Or in symbols that are dark and mysterious, and that you can't penetrate even though you try. But instead, you're here. You're here. And you hear these words read. Read in your ears. To be understood by you and explained to you. Not that it's enough simply to be in this building reading these words or hearing these words. Or that simply having these words entering into your brain through your ears is enough. Or even that understanding the basic message and structure of this last book of the Bible is enough. It's not only the reading and it's not only the hearing, but it's especially the last thing that he mentions that is important. And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. It's one thing to be a hearer. It's another thing to be a doer of the Word. A keeper of those things which are read that is a believer. A believer in Jesus Christ. A believer in this Jesus Christ. The One who is coming on the clouds. The One about Whom all history has been written and has been designed to unveil Him in His glory. Is that you? Are you the One who reads or who hears the words of the book of this prophecy? and who keeps these words, keeps them by treasuring them up in your heart, keeps them by letting hope continue to burn within your soul, even though darkness may fall all around you, is that you? Then blessed are you. Blessed are you. Happy, happy, happy are you. Again, you'd think it'd be the opposite. Not happy, but terrified. Not happy, but outraged. Not happy, but sad and miserable. The end of the world is coming. And all things must be destroyed. And all things must be broken down before He comes. All earthly relationships must permanently be altered. Judgment. Judgment in the earth. How dreadful. How terrifying is the apocalypse. Terrified. Upset. Sad is you who reads. That's what we might think. That's what the world tells us. And so it is for those who hear the words of the book of this prophecy and do not keep them, but dismiss them and turn away from them. But not for you, beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, who believe, happy are you. Happy are you though the whole world collapses around you into nothing. Happy are you though you face persecution, though you face opposition. Happy are you though you live to see the darkest of all times at the end of the world. Happy are you. Happy are you as you are confronted with the apocalypse. For what is the apocalypse? It's the unveiling. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Redeemer, coming, coming for you, coming in His glory. Even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Yea, come quickly. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for this word, which is a word of hope. A word of hope against a dark backdrop. And we pray, O Father, that as we meditate on these things and hear these things, that we will keep them and treasure them up in our hearts and that hope will burn continually in us even as we look for the coming of the Lord and wait for His appearing in great glory. pray, O Father, keep us at the end of all things. Keep our children. Keep us in the faith and preserve us until we see Him ourselves. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.